I was thinking this week of uh, an experience a number of years ago. It was actually January 10th, uh, 2004. Jen and I found ourselves in a situation that was not at all what we planned. Uh, We were, in fact, in an operating room at Columbia Memorial Hospital up in Astoria. And our whole week had just been turned upside down. Everything that we thought was going to happen was not happening. And now Jen is enduring an unexpected hospital visit with all the machines and drugs and poking and prodding and doctors and nurses. And I was by her side this whole time just feeling helpless uh, because her body was in distress. She was sick. There was nothing I could do to fix it. Pretty rough experience. And yet here we were in this operating room, the last place we planned to be. And I stood there in scrubs holding my wife's hand both of us with fear and anxiety. And then all of a sudden, that kind of all just goes to the background when we hear the cry of this little girl, right? My daughter was tiny when she was born. Like, preemie clothes were way too big, tiny. And uh, we had gone through a lot of difficulty at the end of Jen's pregnancy, and all of a sudden, here's this cry, this little five-pound, ten-ounce cry, out of this tiny little human being. A few moments later, she's laying on Jen's chest in her arms. And I remember I had been so worried leading up to this day, worried about did we have the right stuff, the high chair, the car chair, is the house safe, did we do all that? If I'm honest, I was really worried I wasn't ready to be a dad. This is unknown territory, and I wasn't sure I was up to it. But here in this moment, none of that's on my mind. My whole world was my incredible wife, this amazing little girl that we're instantly crazy about. The weirdest thing, right? And so as her tiny hand held onto my finger, I looked Elizabeth in the eye and I made sure that I told her, I will love you so long as you grow up to be a straight-A student. I will love you if you're both smart and beautiful. We will love you if you make it into an Ivy League school and we will give you all of our love if only you can keep from ever doing anything wrong. Obviously, I didn't say anything like that, right? Otherwise, maybe you need to talk to me after service. Um, You know, in that moment when we met, this was with both of our children, when we met them, there was no thought of conditions on our love. In fact, It wasn't even really a decision we made. We just loved them. They existed. They were these little miracles. Some of you have experienced this. We couldn't help but love them. We still can't help but love them. However, uh, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, but I will admit my love isn't perfect. Uh, We're 16 years down the road from that moment, and there have been moments where, if I'm honest, I haven't loved my kids the way I wish I would have. There have been moments where likely they have felt as though my love was conditional, whether I intended it or not. Maybe it felt like my love had its limits. I think about an often quoted line. Uh, this is from 1 John chapter 4, when he writes, There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's a lot going on in that little collection of words there. And 
You know, I think of my own growing up. I was, this may also shock you, I was a really difficult child. In fact, uh, one of the weirdest things that my wife has endured is when my mom found out that we were having a boy, she looked at Jen and said, I hope you have one like I did. Right? We didn't know what to do with that. Thanks, Mom. Apparently, I was amazing. But I can tell you there were moments where there was fear and love, right? Especially in our house, if I really screwed up, it was, you just wait till your father gets home. Anyone, anyone grow up with anything like that a little bit? There's definitely some fear in that love. And so when I come to John's words, when he says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I recognize that's so different from what I know. Not just with getting in trouble, but my whole life. That's so different from what I experienced for the most part. See, the thing is, from our first cry, the vast majority of our experience with love is that it comes with conditions. Sometimes as parents even, we say things like, good boy or, or bad, bad boy, right, when you do something wrong. Or we praise our kids when they perform well, and, and then sometimes maybe we end up being silent when they don't. And without meaning it, we can cause our kids to feel conditions to our love. Most of us grow up with these kinds of experiences, right? There might even be fear of love going away at times, especially as a kid. I know there were lots of times I thought, man, my parents are going to kill me when they find out, right? And, and it wasn't just I'm going to get in trouble. Sometimes there were those moments that I knew I messed up so bad that it's like, are they going to think differently of me? Now, I can't claim to be the greatest dad on earth, but I will tell you I try every day to be just that. But I recognize that this morning there are probably some here who unfortunately their parents didn't even seem to try. Maybe that was your experience. Maybe your parents couldn't see beyond themselves or they battled addiction or whatever it was. It breaks my heart to think even there might be some in this room that, that experienced abuse from the very people who are supposed to love you the most and protect you. The reality is, whatever your growing up experience was like, the love that we know has limits. Most of our relationships, if we're honest, if we were to mess up bad enough, that love is either going to be diminished, or it's going to become distant, or it's just going to change altogether. We exist in a world that love is conditional. Regardless of how good your parents were, from infancy, infancy, this was the picture that you began to develop. In fact, we, before we can talk, we're developing an understanding of this based on uh, the patterns we learn from our parents. Might learn that they love you and at the same time they can be disappointed, frustrated, annoyed, angry, even dismissive of you. And so your experience of love includes all of these other realities. And, and in our experience, they all seem to kind of be separated from one another, Right? When somebody's upset and all that, maybe it feels like that's apart from love. Sometimes we have people who just love us if we do what they want, right? At the same time, we may be shamed or guilted or altogether rejected, punished if we don't follow people's expectations, certainly with our parents, their rules as we were kids. We learn from a very young age to condition our behavior in order to make those around us, our parents included, happy so that they'll accept us and love us. We're seeking love. In fact, 
you learned before you could talk to read facial expressions on the people in your life for any sign of negative attention to where it is this unconscious automatic thing that oftentimes based on just what we see in people, we don't even realize we're reacting and trying to appease them and make them happy because we want to be loved. Whether it was with your parents or your childhood friends, you very quickly learn that if you follow the rules, you get loved. And sometimes if you don't, you don't. And so we carry this understanding into adulthood. We learn that if we violate the rules or we miss expectations, we might be rejected. We learn that we don't feel good about ourselves unless we've acted in a way that makes those we care for accept us and love us. In fact, this is this basic aspect of cognitive and emotional development. This is part of growing up. At a young age, we condition ourselves to please our parents and those around us that we love because we're seeking that in return. And in fact, we learn happiness and self-worth in a way that's connected to those things. And we learn this because whether others intended or not, our experience of love comes with conditions. Love has its limits. Now, you may not realize you learned that, but from a very early age, you have known that and you have lived in that reality that, that love has its limits. In fact, there, we could get all science nerdy here this morning. There are neural pathways that are developed through repetition and repetition and repetition from an early age to where our brains begin continually reminding us of how to behave in a way that will gain approval and perhaps affection. And how to avoid things that will bring anger or distancing of that affection. In fact, our brains very quickly develop the capacity. This is actually pretty wild when you think about it. Our brains develop the capacity to imagine how others will react to something if and when they find out about it before we even do it. It's because this wiring is so deeply ingrained in us. And there's things driving us that often we're totally unaware of. Our brains carry this understanding of the world throughout our lives, seeking to stay within the conditions of love. So this really fascinating thing happens to us as adults. Many of us have this invisible person, this unconsciously imagined parent that we're still trying to please. And, and you may say you aren't that person, but actually most of us in our unconscious still have this sort of imagined parent we're trying to please take up space in our heads and our hearts. And the question has to be raised, why is this the case? Why is this so powerful? It's because we seek to be loved and valued by pleasing that voice. Often we're trying to fill a void we don't recognize. And it's again because our experience tells us in some way that love is dependent upon our behavior and that love has its limits. In fact, I would... Uh, venture a guess this morning that some of us here might live in fear that if people really knew us, really knew our secrets, that love might go away. We often put on masks around people, right? Why do we do that? Because we're afraid of not being loved. We're afraid of being rejected, of not being received. Again, it's because our Experience tells us that love is dependent on behavior, that love has limits.
This is the experience that dominates our understanding of love. Whatever we might write as a description, the Hallmark cards, the theology, whatever, this is really our, our dominant experience. It's love with conditions. It's if I mess up bad enough, love will go away, or at least it will diminish and grow distance. That is a human experience. So I think it's perhaps the most difficult idea for us to believe or even understand that God loves us, period. That God loves us unconditionally because it is so foreign of an idea from everything we've experienced. In fact, I think it takes great faith to believe this because it stands in contrast to what we've experienced and know. We saw uh, from Romans 5 last week this, this idea that the perfect time in God's eyes for Jesus to give his life on our behalf, it wasn't when we finally tried to be good. It wasn't when we at least put in the minimum requirements by the skin of our teeth. No, Paul says the perfect time for Jesus Christ to die for us was when we were powerless to change, when we were sinners, living as God's enemies, doing the opposite of what God would desire from us. In other words, the perfect time for Jesus to give his life away in love was when we were at our worst, which is backwards from our experience. When we were at our worst was the perfect time for God's love to be extended in Christ Jesus. Even as I say that, you know, there's, maybe you have this, there's almost a voice in the back of my head going, yeah, but come on, what's the catch? There's fine print, right? Still got to do something to earn this. Because that's what we know. That's the water we swim in. You see, even the ideas that we've covered the past few weeks, the idea that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God is generous, when we really get down to it, part of why these are so hard for us to really grasp is because most of life that we experience is transactional. In a sense that if I give you what I want, you'll be generous back or you'll be kind or you'll give me love, whatever it is. Love itself is often treated almost like this commodity. It's this thing that's exchanged for something of value. You do what I want and I will give you love. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, it might go away, right? So when I think about the question of the rich young ruler, it's in Matthew 19, really shouldn't surprise us. He comes to Jesus, and what is it that he asks? He asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? It's as though his perception of God and God's love is that it's given in some sort of transaction, right? We provide enough good deeds, and he exchanges that for approval, love, even eternal life. That's the mindset that he's coming with. And that's a very common mindset, right? What do I have to do? How good do I have to be? It's because the very notion of unconditional love is, again, outside of our common experience and understanding. So Paul, when he prays for the Ephesian church, it's this multi-ethnic group that, as he writes, they seem to be divided along racial lines. Paul says there's something that brings him to his knees before God on their behalf. What is that? This is in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven 
and on earth derives its name. I just say Paul's probably emphasizing there that this divided group all comes from the same place ultimately and that they shouldn't be divided. Again, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that you might finally get your act together and stop acting like a bunch of little kids fighting over a toy. It's not quite what he writes, right? That might be how we feel sometimes, though. Right? When we look at disagreement or conflict. I know as a leader, sometimes, if I'm honest, that's how I feel. Come on, quit it, right? But he, this is what he says. He says, I kneel before the Father from, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul, when he looks at this church that's divided, when he looks at this church that's having some issues, he prays that God would empower them to understand something that's incomprehensible. To understand something that is beyond our understanding. And what is that? It's the magnitude of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. As I think about those words, it's beyond our experience, it's beyond our knowledge Because everything we experience is different. God's love is unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's unlike anything else we know or experience. And I think the reason Paul's praying this is he understands that when we truly begin to understand the depth and the magnitude and the immensity of God's love, life is full. When I realize I don't have to hope or try hard or Maybe if I'm lucky, I just realize God loves me, period, with a vast love. And life is full, it's different. But I realize that until we grasp that reality, if we're honest, life is kind of messed up. I mean, we do weird stuff. I do weird stuff. I, I went to Germany a number of years ago. I went as a missionary working with students whose parents were in the military, which, by the way, was a totally cool thing to do, right? Most people don't think... Going overseas as a missionary is a bad thing. But here's sort of the dark, weird part of it. When I really reflect back on that time, I think the reason that I went was I thought God would like me more. If I went and did some super spiritual missionary thing, of course I'm going to like go up a few rungs on the ladder of you know God liking me and loving me. And the, the thing that strikes me about this is I had just graduated with a degree in Bible and theology. And I was still thinking this way. I should have known better, and yet what was truly driving me was that somehow this hope that God would like this guy who had lived a rather duplicitous life if I just became super spiritual. If I just became that missionary, God would, of course, love me more. So I reflect back, That makes perfect sense. 
That's how our world operates. Of course I would think that way. Unless I understood the magnitude and the enormity of God's love that is not limited. Uh, the flip side of that is, is we often get caught in this thought that, and of course, if I mess up, God must like me less. Right? God must be distancing from me when I make mistakes or I treat someone poorly or whatever it is. Because that's how we know love to work in our world. But that view is what drives legalism. It's this idea that we end up living in such a way that we try to control God's love for us by doing enough good things and avoiding the bad things. That's legalism. Of course, by all means, we should avoid sin, but not out of a fear of God's love going away. You know, it's, it's still almost impossible for me to fully imagine and grasp a love that can at the same time enact justice, still correct us, hold us responsible for our actions, but in no way diminish. That's a hard thing to wrap my head around sometimes. Now, to understand God's love, we can look at certainly some of the stories that Jesus teaches. One of the most common that we might turn to is the story of the prodigal son, this boy who demands his inheritance from his father. Sort of like wishing his father dead, by the way, in their culture. He runs off, he wastes all that money, which impacts his father's estate, leads to humiliation, really for the family, not just him. And, and as you hear the story, you expect the son's going to get blasted for this, right? He's even rehearsing this conversation, this apology. He's going to seek forgiveness when he comes before his father in desperation. And of course, in Luke 15, Jesus describes a father whose love isn't limited by his son's arrogance or by his absolute failure. He comes running with this embrace of pure joy. He treats his son like royalty and he throws a party joyfully for his return. Jesus' story is shocking because it really isn't what we expect. It's a love that we have a hard time, if we're honest, comprehending. It's a love that, again, I believe takes great faith to really believe exists. We can also look at maybe some of the people Jesus shows mercy to. The woman caught in adultery, the centurion's servant, these men with leprosy or Zacchaeus. It seems Jesus is constantly seeking to show love to those who seem least deserving of it and their society. In fact, Jesus gets attacked, right, for eating with the wrong kind of people. He seeks out those who are sinful, who are marginalized, who are discarded, in a sense, by culture. And then I think one of the overlooked but beautiful pictures we have of what God's love operates like can actually be found in who Jesus chose to be his disciples. Now, in his final time with his disciples before going to the cross, remember Peter, in all of his confidence, is about to reject Jesus. The rest are going to desert Jesus. This is what he tells them about love. This is in John 15. He says, My command is this, Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know the master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. 
I have made known to you. You did not choose me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Again, this is my command, love one another. Now, you probably noticed all the parts about loving one another, about how the greatest love lays down its life, which, of course, Jesus is about to do. But here again, the words of 16, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. It bears asking, who did Jesus choose? What were the disciples like? Were they the best of the best? Were they morally superior? Were they the brightest of the bunch? Well, if you read the Gospels, they were self-centered pretty regularly. Often they didn't get along with one another. In fact, they didn't really believe Jesus until he backed up his words with actions. Not just doubting Thomas, but there's a scene with a storm. There's numerous places where they clearly struggled to even believe Jesus. His disciples sometimes mistreated or devalued people right in front of Jesus. Uh, it's the feeding of thousands that they tell Jesus, just send these people home without food. Just get them away. The way they treated the prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet, the response they have that they're afraid to say out loud to the Samaritan woman of, what are you doing talking to her? One of the disciples was a thief. Famously betrayed Jesus for money. One of the disciples was a a zealot who believed in forcing people to convert to Judaism. Two of the disciples sent their mom to ask Jesus to give them a higher place than the rest of the group. The disciples often separated themselves in different ways. For example, you know, Peter says, these guys are all going to disown you, but I won't, right? It doesn't work out so well. All the disciples took off when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. They leave him by himself. And again, as you probably know, Peter rejected Jesus three times after he just said he wouldn't do that. To these men, with all of their screw-ups. As Jesus is preparing to be arrested, they're literally about to desert him. Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. They were anything but the best. When Peter is before Jesus in Luke 5, he's confronted with this miraculous catching of fish that doesn't make sense. His knee-jerk response to Jesus is, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. He knows he has no business being around Jesus. He knows he doesn't live up to expectations. Then we have Matthew, a disciple who's uh, he's disreputable. He's a part of a dirty business. So much so that when he responds to Jesus' offer to to follow him and throws a party at his house, all the religious leaders get really offended that Jesus would go, that he would hang around people like this. You see, Jesus didn't choose the disciples based on their ability or their performance, but he chose them in love. These men didn't even involve themselves in burying Jesus after the cross. They were hiding 
They were in fear behind locked doors when Jesus comes to them resurrected. And when he comes, what does he do? Does he chew them out? They say, hey, I made the wrong choice, didn't I? Luke records Jesus saying to these frightened and defeated disciples, peace to you. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he showed him his scars. John writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we, we might live through him. Now this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The idea here is we didn't love him first. We didn't deserve it. He just did it. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, just a chapter earlier in 1 John 3, he writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. God's love is a love that's very different from what I've known everywhere else in my life. It's different even than my my hardest loving efforts to my wife and my kids. See, God loves us as children, but unlike me, His love isn't limited. He isn't imperfect like I am as a father. The Psalms continually speak of God's unfailing love for His constantly failing people. Psalm 86 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Again, to the same Ephesians who Paul was praying for, that they would have this knowledge of something beyond them. The love of God. He also wrote this in chapter 2. He says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That idea is it's radical generosity. It is a free gift, not something deserved. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him at the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, a place we do not deserve to be in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is a picture of a really big love. To the Colossians, Paul writes this. This is Colossians 3. Here's that word again, chosen. Therefore, as God's chosen people. Just let that sink in for a second. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's our model, right? And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Friends, God is like nothing else we know. God's love 
is completely the opposite of most of our experience. It's unlimited. It's not dependent on your performance, what you do or don't do. It's not a love that wavers. It's not a love that comes and goes. It's not a love that changes based on our performance. God's love is without limit. And like the disciples, God chose you. God chose you knowing better than you your faults and your shortcomings and chose to love you, period. And that love is this gift given through Jesus Christ. Again, consider that God knows your darkest stuff probably better than you do and still chose to have you as his child. Still chose to have you receive the love of a perfect father. We serve a God who loves us at our very worst. But again, all that we have learned about love from infancy makes us incredibly hard to grasp, doesn't it? God loves you with a love you can't affect. You can't change. God loves you with a love that's without borders. God loves you with a love that's massive, full of grace and kindness and goodness. Now I'll tell you, I've been familiar with that idea for years and I'm still learning it. Anyone? You still waver back because it's like we got to keep swimming upstream, right? Because everything we experience is re- reinforces otherwise. We got to keep being reminded of the goodness of God's love, the, the implications of God's love. In fact, this is the question is, you know, what are the implications of God's unlimited love for us? I'll just mention a few. One, this morning we can have peace. Whatever's going on, whatever's gone wrong, whatever you've done wrong, we can have peace. We can rest in God's love for us. It's not something we strive for or or try to earn. Another implication of this is just we have a lot to comprehend. We need to keep our eyes on this. We need to keep swimming upstream because we are wired to assume otherwise. Literally, that is how your brain is wired this morning from experience. There are very well-worn ruts of neural pathways in your brain telling you just the opposite from your experience. I think that's why Paul prays that these Ephesians would have an understanding of something he says is beyond their knowledge. Because it doesn't make sense from our experience. Therefore, we need to keep being reminded of this. This past week, if you're part of one of the community groups or reading through the good and beautiful God with the rest of us, one of the exercises was just reading Psalm 23, right? Every day we read that at the beginning of service. It's this picture of a God who provides everything you and I need, a God who wants us to experience peace, a God who loves us, a God who's with us in our darkest moments, a God who can create a good situation in the presence of those against us. And again, a God whose goodness and love is pursuing us all the time. We need to constantly be reminded that our lives with God are not this performance in order to receive His love. But rather, they're just to be this joyful response to it. 
We can only respond when we understand it, when our eyes are on it. So one question this morning is just, how would God invite you to rest in His love for you? I mean, if if you're honest this morning, can you see ways in which you've been striving to try to somehow be worthy of God's love, to be good enough, to be better, so that you can rest and know God will love you? Would God maybe encourage you just to believe this morning that in spite of your worst efforts, God still loves you? That that isn't going to change? You don't have to wonder? How would God invite you to rest in His love? The core of, foundation of, our hope is that this same Jesus whose disciples totally didn't show up for him, walked out on him. This Jesus whose own people murder him goes to the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't say, break down some lightning bolts. Take them out. These are people who do not deserve his mercy. These are people actively destroying his life. He says, Father, forgive them. Why would we think he approaches us any differently? What would it look like to just rest in that love this morning? And the second question is this. How would God invite you to respond to his love? See, the the fullness of God that, that Paul prays for these Ephesians, I believe when we really are saturated with this understanding of God's love for us, the Christian life is much easier to live. It isn't trying to do good and trying to avoid bad. It's just responding with joy. It's wanting to love others, wanting other people to experience this amazing experience that I have. I think the reason that our loving conduct towards one another, which is commanded to us again and again, and again in the New Testament. I think part of why it's so important and so emphasized is that we desperately need to paint a picture for the world of a different kind of love and what it looks like. In some tiny way, in the way we love one another that's different, we reflect the goodness and the love of God. That's what we're called to. We're created to reflect God's love. I'm going to pray for us, but I just encourage you to to sit in these two questions this morning. How would God invite you to rest in His love? And how would God invite you to respond to His love? Let's pray. Father, I would echo Paul's words and just ask that you would empower us by your Spirit to understand something that's well beyond us. This morning, by your Spirit, would you help us just to catch a fresh glimpse of the enormity of your love for us? Would you help us to believe that even in our worst, you still love us? Would you free us from from trying to control your love by the way we act? Would you empower us just to understand for a moment the manner in which we're loved by you? Would you help us to believe 
that you love us in that way. And God, may that in turn empower us to love others well, that we might reflect you. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.